Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week. Please subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming shows. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. And thanks to my podcasting partner and co-host Patrick from Pull String Press for this great studio. Hey, Patrick, good morning. Good morning, Mark. It's been so long since we've done this 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 intro, and we've been doing so many other podcasts in between that it's it's like pulling on an old shoe or something. It just is. Now. It feels comfortable, doesn't it? Yeah, hearing you do the intro there, it was, yeah. I was like, oh yeah. Well, you know, let's just back. tell our listener that we started what three years ago. We're what 190 shows into this, but now we're getting ready to go on our fifth show, and we're we're helping other people tell their stories, and it's a lot of fun. I, we, you know, it, it's it's that that opportunity where the the Polstering Press Studios has finally turned into uh, what we had kind of hoped for, which was yep. which was a v- real vital hub for storytelling and and the opportunity for people to get their podcasts out there. I enjoy the stories we hear here, and we're going to have another one today. I'd like you to meet Primo Custodio. Primo's the executive in residence and an adjunct professor at our sponsor, California Lutheran University. And Primo, you said before we went on the air that you're in your encore career. That's correct. I, I love I love that word, encore career. I refuse to uh, retire. Well, you know, you I, in looking at um, what you've done in life, and you did an amazing, had an amazing run, forty four years at NBC Universal, but it was with NBC when it was just NBC. As I mean, you said you went through six mergers and acquisitions. So was it originally NBC when you started? Or what no. Was it? When I originally started, uh, I worked in Yosemite National Park. Oh, I love it. Yosemite. Which was owned at that time by Universal Studios. MCA what? owned the concession rights to Yosemite. So Lou Wasserman had bought yeah. the concession yeah. rights. So MCA Universal Studios, that was a, a cash cow for them at the time. This is back in 72. Oh, my gosh. And so, so when Matsushita purchased MCA, Lou Han, who was the Secretary of Interior at that time, had called Lou Wasserman personally and said, you know, foreign entities can't own any business oh. on federal land, and you're going to be right. required to divest. So that set into motion my transfer from beautiful Yosemite Valley <laughs> to the San Fernando Valley and years pretty of much, uh, pretty much the same. therapy. <laughs> my Beverly Hills therapist, I'm just teasing, but uh, it was uh, quite the adjustment. Yeah. But in the long run, fabulous career, as you said. It turned out to be a fabulous career, and you're correct. There were six mergers and acquisitions that I actually went through since 1988. I think you're the second person who has early roots at Yosemite who's been on the show. Mm-hmm. And we had another one who was a ranger up there and then took a hard right turn in his career. But you ended up in human resources primarily. Is that right? Yes. It's a, it's a long story, actually. Well, we have time. <laughs> Great. That's even better. So I was in junior college in the Bay Area, uh, two years, and we had a a club called LIFE, which was an acronym for Logical Interpolation of Functional Ecology. And we had one of the first recycling centers in the state of California. Oh, I love it. In the East Bay. And I still have the letter from um, the senator uh, congratulating us on our efforts. Anyway, we used to go to Yosemite all the time uh, on weekends. We'd spend the recycling money, of course, at that time to fund these great trips up to you know, Lake Berryess or Yosemite. So um, I had a girlfriend go up there, and she got a summer job, and she said, you know, this would be a really great time uh, for you to come up and and work for the summer and see if you like Yosemite. And I said, gosh, what do I have to lose? So I went up, and I applied, and I went back, and I said, we're really sorry. We lost your application. You're going to have to apply again. My girlfriend said, that's a really good sign. You're going to get hired. And so I got hired the next day as a bus washer. For two thirty-five an hour, and I was like, nice. "This is 1972," and I'm, sure. I'm like so excited. And I had come out of a very tumultuous childhood. Uh, you know, parents died when I was very young, orphaned, lived in a series of foster homes, and so this was 
a time of getting grounded, although I didn't know it then. I mean, I can say that now in retrospect. Sure. So going to Yosemite provided me with a lot of stability. And then Yosemite, surprisingly, after that stability period of stability would be the launching point for this career uh, that I really wanted in human resources, which at that time was called personnel. Did you, when did you know you wanted to do that? I knew it uh, probably, I want to say, a couple of years after I landed in Yosemite. I actually started washing buses as a bus washer in Yosemite, and wanted, I just helped organize a garage with the Teamsters. It was the first union organizing in the National Park history, and the head of personnel came over uh, to me, and I thought he was going to fire me. I'm positive, like, hey, I'm going to be fired. We organized a garage, and at that time, I didn't know it would be illegal for him to do that. And he said, hey, you know what? We could really use your talents in, in personnel. And I was like, really? What do you mean by right. that? Right. What we is, mean so you're too good down here. We need a, <laughs> yes. you to be in management so yes. you don't fight us. Thank you very much. Yeah. So I had this wonderful mentor named Don Quigley. He's no longer alive. And he put together this management program and said, you know, I think you have a lot of talent. And he was very uh, perceptive when it came to assessing potential in young people. Mm -hmm. And so he said, I want you to spend six months in employee relations, in benefits, and compensation. So he moved you around. Yes. So the multifaceted world of... Even at a national park. Yes, because it was a concessionaire. So you have to remember at this time, Lou Wasserman, MCA Universal Studios, owned the right to operate the ski resort, the five-star Awani Hotel, all of the things there. So that he, had, he had lots of opportunity to work with lots of different kinds of people. I did, from all because people came there from all over the world to work, especially those individuals who had just finished master's degrees or um, PhDs. It was always fascinating to me. I thought they would want to go right into their profession, and they'd come in and say, hey, I'm taking a break, and do you have an opening for a waiter at the Iwani Hotel? And we had several of those. And so anyway, to answer your question, though, I get into human resources, and I think, gosh, I really like this. I, I am all about people. My background of growing up was that I had to assess people early on. When you live in foster homes and you're moving, uh, you have to uh, be a quick read of people and know who's your friend, who you got to look out for. And it's, a, it's an arduous process of, of learning adaptation. But the, in, in the end, it would help me survive the six mergers and acquisitions, which uh, is a story later. But um, great proving ground for me there in Yosemite. I think it's interesting how life events seem very, very challenging when they're happening. And it's not until multiple years later, decades later, that you go, I am so glad that happened to me. I wouldn't, as you said, be a quick read of people. I mean, that, that's a superpower that you have, isn't it? It is. It's gotten me through six mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> and instead of, uh, it was one of the... Uh, the basic premises of my um, commencement speech in 2014 to the graduate and undergraduate class at CLU was how it's important for us to take all those experiences in life as a child, understand them, and as horrible as they can be at time, find the tiniest grain of positive hope, and then use that to build your, your foundation, your cornerstone in life. And it just can't be shaken. You just can't be knocked off of that. But it is a tremendous superpower. So it helped me later on when corporate parents would come in, new ones, with the new cultural footprint. Which you had a lot of experience with new parents. Right. So that was my analogy from you know foster parents to corporate parents. Right. There's a, right. a lot of uh, skills you can use in adaptation. And it wasn't really about me as much as it was, how am I going to get you know, my division executives and the workforce through managing this change, you know, this huge tumultuous period. Do, do one of those for us. Do, do that, that, that you, you, you know that it's coming. And so how are you getting ready? And then on that first day that the new, the new kind of regime or the new parent shows up, what are you seeing in them? Like, like, cause you, let's go three or four mergers back so that it's not so current, but like, was it, you know, was it was it treacherous? Did it feel treacherous when they walked through the door? Or did it feel like, okay, I see what I can see there? Really good question. I think it's there's always a certain element of treachery in it because you're talking about change. And as human beings, I think, basically, 
anything that involved change, we're unsettled with, we're not comfortable with. And in organizational structures, when you have change, particularly cultural changes, all your issues bubble up to the surface. Mm, Infrastructure, communication. So there is that hesitancy of, I don't know what the new expectation is for my job. Mm. What's a success profile? Are we still going to have the same employee benefits? So Mm. it's the specter of the unknown. And are they friendly? And even though I was on a lot of these integration teams, you still don't know what's going to be unveiled until you're a year or two into it. Now, oh. I'm not trying to be circuitous in sure. answering your question as much as I am trying to um, explain how difficult it is when you learn that you your company has been purchased. And I can still remember coming around the corner on the 101 into Studio City, and I was listening to KNX, and it said, the Matsushita flag will be flying over MCA Universal Studios, American flags flapping in the wind. And it was such a picture in my mind mm-hmm. at that time. And I thought, what does this mean? Mm. You know, and is this, this is the Jap, it's Japanese culture coming in. And you'd seen some movies <coughs> about it. You'd seen some. I did. Yeah. And I saw some not very good movies uh, in college about cultural integration. I think it was a Toyota film. I was just going to say it was class. a car. It had to be a car. Yeah, it was a had Toyota car. film. But um, who you are and the position you hold, but most importantly, how you interact with the workforce, your field presence, as we call it, really comes down at the end of the day to that's what it's all about. Are you going to get me through this? And do I trust you Hmm. as the head of HR for your particular division? Hmm. So, yes, it's always uh, anytime. And GE had the largest and deepest cultural footprint of any organization because they were huge. Give me an example of that when you say deepest. Um, The financial culture. Of GE. So what the expectations of, of profit? Yes, of I, as an HR person, all the HR people were expected to understand you had PN, you know, profit and loss groups. Um, and you had to sit down and understand the finance and be able to articulate the finances of your particular group. Whereas before, HR people and managers, not so much. It really became a financial culture is what I'm trying to say here. So that's a very uh, deep impact. And finance was king. Whereas before it was, I mean, it was different. Mm -hmm. Skill sets. Mm -hmm. Do they Mm -hmm. fit with the other people on the team? Those would have been precursors. But now it was, can we budget this? Can we afford this talent? Or can we afford this? Right. And a more critical eye to how you're managing your capital Mm -hmm. and your expenditures. Not that the company didn't do that before, but it was the type of rigor and and the culture, the byproduct of that rigor that really arrived on the scene. With that massive corporation, right? It's it's interesting. Does that make sense? It it's yeah. completely makes sense. It's it's reminding me of. Um, so I I have a a long relationship with NBC. Uh, was the founder of a computer animation software company here in Santa Barbara called Wavefront, and I got to go to the NBC Magic Lab in 1986 in New York, which is where all new technology went to get vetted for one year before it would go into the, uh-huh. the facility, right? Right. And um, so I had a, uh, I had 16 years of Olympic experience with NBC. They used R3D for all of the stuff for the Olympics, all the sports and the election graphics, Impressive. all of that stuff. So I love going to 30 Rock and doing all of that. We were then bought by a, a, a hardware company, Silicon Graphics, and the culture shift in, we were creative engineering company, but the culture shift was around PL, which hadn't been before. It was around invention, innovation. How do we, you know, how do we render this thing? How do we make fluids? How do we do dynamics? Right. All that stuff. That was always the question of the day. And what happened in running an engineering organization, we actually had to, we put the developers in our business meetings, in our team meetings, and get them to start to have a sense and a flavor for what that was. Mm-hmm. And it actually was really positive in the way it helped them make decisions. But I, I can see, again, that was a result of a acquisition and then having a new culture come in on top of us. I'm, I wanna 
take a different tack here to say, how did you stay, how do you stay in touch with individual employees or how do you do that when you're in such a vast empire, if you will? How do you, how do you keep that one-on-one -on -one relationship? Because HR is all about that people-to-people -people thing. How do right. you do that? It's a lot of time out in the field. It's making yourself available. I think the whole key to this is trust. Mm. You have to be an executive or a leader who the workforce trusts. They will come to you with issues, but it's a two-way street. You have to make yourself available. So if I had to go out to staff meetings, um, they knew I had an open door. The workforce knew I had an open door policy. Those are all critical aspects of any merger and acquisition. And the more we went through mergers and acquisitions, the more comfortable the workforce was, including executives coming to me and saying, okay, what, now what, what? do you, yeah, you think is <laughs> going to happen with Seagram or uh, Vivendi you know, or NBC or General Electric? And, and so you build that rapport, if you will. But I think your presence out in the field is really critical, and that's combined with um, trust and transparency, that they know they're going to get the truth from you. They may not want to hear it, but they're going to get the truth from you, and they'll know that. And there's, because when you know when you have mergers and acquisitions, there's tremendous amount of, you know, rumors and gossip and uh, speculation and fear. There's no trust. There's no trust. We've got trust de but, depleted. So th right. was was that kind of like you were the uh, the firefighters then during that time as HR? Because you're trying to hold your staff because that's what they've they've acquisitioned is is this quality staff and it, and if they're coming to you going I need to get off this ship if they're bailing off, there's got to be a lot of that right? A lot of you there, kind of saving them. There is a lot of that. I think it's the whole arena of. Are we going to be downsized? Right. Are they going to close our department? And executives right. may say, look, am I going to have a job here? And I always took the, the tact of, listen, we don't really know other than what we read and people that we know that work in the acquiring, uh, the organization that's going to acquire us, what their culture's like. But I always encourage individuals to use this time of transition and uncertainty to put a stake in the ground mm. and to ask questions like, you know, Patrick's my, my new vice president of uh, human resources. What can I do to help make you successful in this transition? Now, that means I want to be part of the transition because there were many people that opted out. Sure. Who were very marketable. Take at, the package. Yeah, take the package or they were very marketable and didn't have to didn't want to put up with a, a merger and acquisition, and I understood that. Which is funny, though, because that, that still means change, right? Like, they still have to then change to a new location, a new company. You know what I mean? It's like, either you can take the change that's arriving through acquisition, or you can take the change that is going to be going and finding a new position somewhere else, right? Right. But I think there's a lot more in the first change, because you have so much vested oh, and in that particular right. organization, so mm. you're giving up so much more. Of your of what you know and of what is yours and in that you, context yeah. of the workplace, yes. So you over this period developed this muscle on how to be acquired. Kind of like that, okay? Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Can you get it's a good technique. at that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was there ever a a time when you were the acquisitor and you had the shoes now on the other foot and you can absolutely see things? much clearer as a result? No. That didn't happen? No, I was never, we were, when I was there, we were always being acquired. And if another, there were other divisions that did acquiring at that time, sure. but I was not part of that. So my group, studio operations, was pretty much intact. So I had a chance last week to be in Iowa at the Iowa State Society of Human Resource. Administrator Sherm, SHRM, yes. right? Um, Which is, you're yes. well, I'm sure. Were you ever on I the think board I still, of Sherm? No, I wasn't, but I think I still, I've got to check my membership card to see if it's still active. So for I paid our, my dues. our listener who is listening, it's the professional association for people in this field. And it makes me wonder with 44 years in this field, what are, 
the big phase shifts you saw in human resources? Because the, the people who are listening to the show are either startups and, and they're wearing an HR hat or they're, you know, small businesses and they're just starting to think, should we have someone in HR and mid-sized businesses that are, oh my God, I, I, I need more people in HR to, you know, much larger. We're 98% six people and undersized businesses in this region. What are the big changes you've seen? And then I want to land on the final ones. I think in the 80s, the big change was in business in this country was mergers and acquisitions. Actually became a thing. It Love. just, it really did on Wall Street. Wall Street understood mergers and acquisitions. It, it impacted the bottom line. You know, you were streamlining these organizations. You're doing vertical, whatever, integration. You mean um, it came from like financial organizations that, that were like, the, like on Wall Street, of two, finan two banks or two things like that might merge. But in kind of like the rest of business, mergers weren't necessarily a regular thing. No, let, let me restate it. What I mean is that Wall Street understood that when companies merged, like entertainment companies, that there were cost savings there mm. that could be had through reorganization so that and streamlining. And that's why I think in the 80s, it was there were so many mergers and acquisitions across the board. To your point, banks. Mm. Um, accounting firms. I mean, they're still happening, and there are some benefits um, to that. I think the merger and acquisition was um, huge. The concept of re-engineering in the 90s, that we're going to re-engineer the organization. Once which, it's been acquired or once... Yes, like with Seagram, I mean, and it's not a secret, it was public. I think it was a $95 million cost to re-engineer streamline at that time. That was the term and reorganize. Re-engineer is code for what? Uh, it depends on who you talk to, <laughs> downsizing, consolidating. <laughs> Thank you. But that was, um, your listeners will understand that term uh, from the late 80s, uh, early 90s. I always felt like it was, it was uh, make all of our vendors rebid for the business, you know, like go out, go out for rebid on everything to like shop your insurance, shop renegotiate, your, renegotiate everything because, because all of a sudden you, you know, you're no longer working with, you know, some, some relationship you've had with this certain vendor for the last however long or provider. Right. And if you, oh, sorry for interrupting, but no, if no. you put a merger and acquisition on that, you're, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. They're going to want to shop differently. And then I think technology really was huge. The whole social media. Well, you go from you know, the 90s, the so, you're, so professor, you're giving us a little class here. You <laughs> took us through the 80s, then the 90s, so then we get into the, I think we the aughts, the, it's technology. Yeah, really technology. And it was a change from personnel being administrative, clerical, to one of human resources where you're taking a different look at your workforce and force in terms of human, I hate this word, but I'll use it, human capital, how do you develop that mm -hmm. potential? And how do you man start managing talent, developing leaders? That has always been there, but I think it was just more of a focus. And then there was that evolution from personnel to human resources. We just went through that whole period where the government started uh, coming in and, and mandating many things that we do, laws, hiring, termination. So you have a, a legal uh, impact. And then finally, this um, whole issue of technology with data, what we're seeing now, data analytics, where we're taking numbers in the workforce, productivity, turnover, we're mining them, we're using patterns that we um, you know, extrapolate out of that and tying that into an organization's business strategy and making sure your talent management is aligned with your business strategy. And I'm not going to say that <clears throat> that alignment of strategy hasn't always been there, but I think with the onset of technology and the tools that um, HR has now as a result of the technology, um, does in fact allow for more insight than in the past. It's, it's interesting that you got us from 
this M and A through reengineering. And I, by the way, I put an umlaut over the E in reengineering to make it a fancier word, <laughs> uh, which makes me think that <laughs> tip of the day, kids, throw umlauts in. Exactly. That um, uh, we have a family member who's in crisis communications in New York, mm-hmm. and she gets brought in to be the internal comms person in one of these situations. Like, how do we communicate to the staff? Like, what are the kinds of messagings we need to do, whether it's a big downsize or it's a re-engineering? And I think it was yes. one of those people who probably came up with, no, 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 we're not calling even downsizing. And then there's riff. I love that when there's a reduction in force. Right. But there's all these, you know, nice words. Uh, but it was a comms person that kind of figured that out. But you got, you you said. Kind of sanitizes the, the mm-hmm. real issue of you're letting people go. I, I'm going to. Difficult. Uh, Oh, you're free. You're freeing them to re-enter the marketplace. No, no, you're not. Give them an opportunity. No, no, you're giving them an opportunity to upsell what their uh, current income. That's called spin. Uh, We (laughs) have no comment. We had no. I know. Well, we had to do that one time at Wayfront. We we had to let a bunch of people go, Mm -hmm. and it was, it was hideous. And it you know it started. We there was one office. It happened to be next door to mine, and that's where the meetings were going to happen. And the first the first one, she screams. Oh my. And that's how you start your day. Well, and you yeah. realize at so that I point t- that the person doing the uh, the releasing is is maybe not skilled enough to accommodate. Maybe, but it was it was like okay, I don't want to ever have to do this again. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm going to make decisions as an executive so that we don't do this again. But I digress because I wanted to go from you went from personnel and you you was embedded in there. You said talent management and. Right now, what you have is, I mean, I work with a huge New York firm. They don't have a head of HR. They have a chief talent officer. Yeah, that's because this generation is just nothing but talented people, right? Isn't that the, I'm, I'm waiting for you to start pushing in towards this conversation around the people that you saw hired in the 80s versus now. I'm not walking down that road right now. <laughs> Please well, I was, feel free. I was well, I was I was going to to I, the talent that Mark brings up is is very interesting to me that 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 has become in the same way that we've softened the language around how do we downsize, we have uh, created this sensationalized language around the positive side of things around you know everybody's talent. Right. There has look. There's always been talent management since the beginning of time. You it's just to. over you know over the decades how we manage the talent is different human capital was not a term when i was in personnel back in the did they late have? 70s it wasn't there you no know, it's used that now term, it's hcm human. actually human capital management, management it's a thing right, right. No. so i think yeah. when you talk about the acronyms you really have to you know drill down and see what the essence of that acronym is is it is it really helping people to grow and develop right. and reach their right. full potential right. as managers. You know, you can go back to the, to the scientific theory days of, um, you know, in the, I think it was the 20s with uh, Taylor and, and look at how talent was managed then. I mean, so talent has been around forever. Managing it has been around forever. Do we have fancy names for it? Do we have a different way of handling talent now? Yes. Um, and talent has grown very differently. People have grown very differently as a result of changes in society, technology. So what does, so yeah, lay out first, just real briefly perhaps, um, what uh, an HR executive now or, or a talent manager now is dealing with, what, like how would, they, how would they treat somebody differently than like when you were first kind of going at it in the 80s? Well, if I go back to the 70s, the 70s. and the, the non-existence of, let's say, Gender equality, sexual harassment, mm. um, um, okay. those things were tolerated in organizations. So, you, so there was no there processing has been an, I will tell you that those individuals who were savvy, sensitive, and understood human behavior, and that that was wrong in the workplace, in my opinion, I, I worked for a couple of them, would come out and counsel someone and say, you know what, that's not really appropriate behavior in the workplace and that was the simplicity that was used then and there weren't all the laws that we have in place but there was common but some executives had you know a certain modicum of decorum that they understood should prevail if not in the company in the areas they were in charge of that's that's part of the culture 
That's a cultural thing. You're yeah. correct. Right. It is. But I'm responding to his question about yeah. how is it different? Well, it's different now because the laws are very specific. There's actual terms, paperwork. There's, there's right. Well, because we got sued so much. And, yeah. one and of we the, have lawyers in compliance, right? right? right. One of the senators, uh, when they're off a break in California, I heard on the radio yesterday, is going to introduce a bill that, if she's successful, will prohibit executives from putting non-disclosure agreements oh, in yeah. their executive mm -hmm. contracts, that non-disclosure involving sexual harassment, right. sexual assault. And that's, that's because of the Weinstein. Right. Weinstein. Now, I'll tell you, that was not something you would think about then. So you just, right. I think you have to put all of what we're saying in these fancy terms in the context of how this culture and society in our country has evolved in the world. And But, but also what perhaps what, and, and correct me here if, I, if I'm not getting this correct but, or right, but um, uh, you, you're saying that, that, that regardless of the law being in place, you, you worked with some executives that looked at it and said, hey, this is not the culture that we can accept. You know, they didn't have the fancy terms, but in the 70s they were saying, no, 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 we are not going to have this, this, this madman-style uh, atmosphere here. That's not going to be how I manage things, which, right. is, which is encouraging to hear that, you know, like, because in our minds, like, everything in the 70s was just kind of right. this dark time. You know, I mean, that's literally what uh, the, the uh, Hollywood executive's defense was. Well, I grew so up in a time when that was okay. Exactly. But those were the leaders that I always looked for. Yeah. Mm. Those were some mm. of the attributes I thought, I want to be like this individual yeah. because this is just how we treat people. It's just that basic. Hmm. So were you, you were in the C-suite? No. What is a C-suite? The, the corporate suite. Oh. Now, okay. I, when I was with um He said no so immediately. <laughs> well, you think of that's corporate that's, suite. Right. I, did, I did support corporate executives so in they the would call HR and say, capacity. Say, Primo, I need a this corporate aviation for example hmm. if this, so i supported during seagram um the corporate aviation group on the west coast so i had that affinity with the with the corporate group so switching gears again tell me what you teach as an adjunct professor at clu um i teach communication for managers uh, it's a junior level it's undergrad Minimum requirement is junior level. And it's, a, it's been a, an amazing experience. <laughs> Give me an amazing experience. This Tell is me what it's like, because we have another. Uh, I you, do some uh, adjunct work. Oh, yeah, thank okay, you. great. Yeah. And that looking at a room full of those wide-eyed young people, looking at the, I think of it as looking at the future. What does that do <laughs> to is. you? It is, right? Mark, it looks like this. Oh, you're going to show me. Oh, okay. yeah, right. They're all uh, – listener Patrick has just picked up his phone, and he's texting something. Um, and yeah, I'm texting him back. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and you're trying to break through the, the, right. the blue glazed face. Yeah, there's – there's. What's, what's that like? What, go, what went through my mind that first day, other being just scared ridiculously Oh, come, come on. You were, you were Your communications pro. No, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a whole different setting. But when I looked out across the room, I thought, what a fabulous opportunity yeah. I've been given. One, yep. to yep. live this dream, to teach, to pay it forward, to mentor the next generation of HR and business professionals. And if someone was in their career, had a career in my class, what an opportunity to elevate that. And I looked at those faces and I remember that class and I was like, there's all this raw potential here. Yep. And my job is to make sure that I, these learning objectives and this atmosphere is such that I can teach, it's an open environment, and that they can learn and come away with tools that they can use in today's workplace how to simple things like eye contact in an interview how to speak how to present part of it is how to write right now we're going through cover letters mm -hmm. and resumes and how to put those together and the I bones just the bones yes. of it yeah and a lot you know and for some of them and their seniors they're getting ready to enter the workforce so I felt on that first day, back to your original question, tremendous amount of responsibility mm -hmm. to make sure that they left with the tools that this class and syllabus and curriculum was designed to give them when they walked out of the door. And granted, 
I realize they're going to only learn as much as they can. But I wanted to make sure that the environment, and I think it's continual in a teaching career, and I'm new at this, but um, I wanted to make sure the teaching environment was such that there was transparency, there was trust, they could answer, ask questions, they would get answers, I was available, I was timely in my response, and you know, no, uh, no question was off, uh, you know, was off limits. I would imagine those questions with you are the most valuable thing because uh, my experience has been kind of what you were just saying of, of you don't even know how valuable just, like, like you've read a thousand first lines of cover letters or a thousand, <laughs> you know, mil, uh, you know yeah, yeah. thousands of, of um, you know, just, just little framing, just little bits of, 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 you know, industry trade, you know, and, and you don't even maybe even know to say, oh, by the way, never open with this line or never, you know, never cite this or never. Yes, I am it. your dream candidate. Yeah, yeah, never. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, those are the things where it's kind of like, I mean, I remember um, I had an English 20 plus years ago in community college. I had an English teacher who said to be verbs are lazy. You know, when you say to be, would be, should be, just oh, interesting. drop them. Go look for go look go look for what you're actually saying. Skip over the you know you find find a take take some time and use an actual verb. And I you know twenty years later that's still stuck in my head. That was that was two minutes of a lecture in the middle of a you know class twenty some years ago. But it just sunk in. And now every time I write, it's like how can I get rid of my to be verbs? This notion of communication as a skill, as mm, a, I, mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's, it's one of the things that doesn't get as much focus. I'm thrilled to hear that there's that, <laughs> because as leaders, as managers, as you know, in the workforce, I think that's probably, if it's maybe not number one, it's in the top three of things that you constantly are sharpening that sword. You know, I, I don't talk about being a good communicator. I say you want to be a gifted communicator and that do I whatever like that. you need to do. Right. To, and, and I'm still studying that. Like now I'm studying storytelling. I've always told stories, but stories can be even more effective if there, there's some structures yes. that you can use and they really resonate with people because I want to be a gifted communicator. We so, remember stories. Oh. Mm-hmm. They're impactful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're, mm-hmm. they're universal. Yes. Right. I can tell that story and you're instantly going to relate to that story in your own Absolutely. life. And that message is going to sit with you and to to your point of a teacher mm-hmm. saying one thing at one minute. I'm thinking of all those little minutes in my life where I got those the li- another little tool. Here's another little tool. Here's another. I mean, I, I use a communication framework probably two or three times a day that was a 15 minute exercise in a workshop. 25 years ago. But it was one I of love those that. kind of things. I love it. Right? It's great. And we call it one for the toolbox. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm doing. I'm helping these students build this toolbox. And right. Later on and throughout their career, pick it up. Maybe need to sharpen that. Yep. But, you know, you, you give them everything you can. And communication, you're absolutely right in a world where, they're, where they text and they're online and it's safe and I don't have to encounter facial expressions i don't mm. have to encounter physical presence it's it's much more safe that way to communicate do we, you i'm sorry no i just i was i'm i'm fasting because one of the things i keep thinking of is is well how mark and i have spoken to so many startup weekend winners and and typically the startup weekend the the, the kids who are starting up business is very young it's eye contact it's it's how are you my name is i do this you know and they're very those communication skills but but my maybe a, a, a more subtle question is is like so you've got this classroom you've got all these 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 students and you're working with them are you giving them the skill set also to be like um there's 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 the student who comes in and they've got all the terminology and all the language and they're and they've got the great cover letter and they can get through your interview great but they're maybe not the best employee. How do you sift through the bravado of a good interview versus uh, somebody who has an incredible skill set but is just maybe an introverted type person and not as comfortable? Mm-hmm. Okay, you went from student to, I just want to make sure I'm on the same page here, yeah. from student to employee. Well, so what I'm saying perhaps is, is that as you train these students, as you, as you activate these students and give them their toolkit, um, it can't be the same tool for every kid, right? It's not. Right. You have to, you know, you have to broaden how you teach. And maybe uh, I guess what I'm to, to put a finer point on it now that I've talked for three minutes about nothing um, is to uh, <laughs> is to what what how do you coach a student who's perhaps 
you know, it's not just that they're looking at their phone. It's that they are, you know, worldly drawn in. What, what, where do you go with that? Well, I don't allow laptops, iPhones in my class unless it's part of it. Right. And they get deducted points, as elementary as that sound, mm-hmm. if they're texting. So I have that rule right away. It's communication class. It depends on I – have, I have to assess the students quickly. So I have um, – Another recurring theme. Yeah, yeah they, they stand up and there's a take the floor exercise, oh, nice. um, which another uh, professor there, uh, brilliant idea. And that's where I really get to see and give input on individuals. What's the take the floor exercise? Sorry. It's where they have to answer questions in the book. Mm. They put them on a three-by-five note card, the answers. And then they stand up in front of the class, and they have to... They have the answers. The answer's there, but it's in bullet point. So I'm asking for eye contact, minimal reading, and having them get comfortable with themselves in front of the class. Yep. And I can't take credit for this. My mentor at CLU, she's the, you know, she had some brilliant ideas. Like on the first day, you ask the stu- before the class, you ask the students to post their photo and a soundbite from their favorite song that represents their generation. Mm. <laughs> and then what I do is when they come into class is to play a mix mash of, of those all songs. That? Those songs, maybe How fifteen fun songs. Is that? Just like every five seconds. And then they go through a visualization process. They're in a, a club with a friend. And it's a dance club. And what happens? And the music changes based on the different generations. Mm. And then I throw in a popular fifties song or a forties song. And then you ask the students on the visualization what happened. And some of them are like, well, my clothes are changing depending on what era that song was Mm -hmm, from. mm -hmm. Or I was this or that. So this is the basis for getting them to be in tune with their environment. Communications. Thank you. And then Mm -hmm, communicating. mm -hmm. So that really starts the ball rolling. Mm. And there are those that are going to be very shy. And I'm always pleased at the last presentation when the shy person Introver- I don't know if they're introverted. I'm not a psychologist, but you know they, they're, they're just so alive and present in the moment. It's just wonderful to see because something has happened there very yep. important. Yeah. Maybe you've given them something, some kind of permission that they didn't have before. Right. Giving them some ability to access a comfort exactly. zone. Exactly. Yeah. Or the best one is a professor that says, you know, so and so talked in my class. They've been taking your communication class, boy where they are articulate and, and comfortable in them with themselves in the class. Are you familiar with Susan Cain, who did the Quiet Revolution, and she did a TED Talk on, she talks about, she's an introvert, but she was a lawyer, so she had to be an extrovert. Right. And then she introduces <laughs> in the a, a new term called ambivert. What is that? What is that? Oh, I'm that's me. That. I'm an ambivert, <laughs> big time. But it's... it's. Can I Google that for a minute? Yeah, you <laughs> can. Uh, Susan Cain. Um, so we know what an introvert is, okay. and and we have periods of being introvert. We and, gotta and, self-identify. And again, and we can we can probably identify that those terms were created at a time where where dropping people into individual silos was really right, convenient. Right. But, but but she makes a point about how do we deal by identifying those people? How do they work? She doesn't like open offices, for instance, big open office uh-huh. environments because it doesn't work well for that introverted person right right but it was like because people say mark you're so extroverted and i go no i self i would self-identify as an introvert but actually i'm an ambivert and i thanked susan for giving us permission to be that to be that right (laughs) thank you so much i kind of like that there was a uh, something that i didn't want to let drop as we go into our final minutes one of the ways of communicating that is underappreciated and i'm curious if you focus on it at all which is nonverbal communication I do in the class. Give we talk about body. Um, there are a couple of great um, scenarios, videos we use, but we talk about body posture. Are the arms crossed? Is it when you're at an interview? Oh, I am constantly I'm, uncrossing I'm them because I'm like, sure. because I'm telling people I don't want in, but and I, I'm that's, demonstrating yeah. this as we talk. Yeah. I'm very closed here. That's, his, yeah. his legs are crossed, and his arms are crossed. And my head is down, and I'm not giving either one of you eye contact. That yeah. is very subtle communication of maybe I don't want to be here, maybe I don't trust you, maybe you don't trust me. Now, keeping the hands under the table during an interview like this, mm. you know, like, okay, what's, that's nonverbal, as opposed to my having my hands up here and, 
and being much more confident with them on the table. So the class does get an understanding of what nonverbal communication is, but more importantly, the impact it can have in an interview. And, and perhaps that's not a, perhaps that's not a, pot. let me get closer to the mic. You <laughs> can tell I've done this before. Nonverbal's um, great on radio. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to get back and demonstrate a nonverbal. <laughs> It was great. I, yeah. I thought you were very relaxed. Yes. But, um, <laughs> He's so calm here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, uh, to be honest with you, it's, yes, the nonverbal cues are very important. If I don't afford you eye contact during this podcast, that's a signal that's up to your interpretation. We, and it leaves, and it leaves then, it leaves, since you're not participating in eye contact, it le- then you're giving all of it over to the, to the other person, right, to, to develop their opinion. Right. I'm yeah. not controlling. You always want to control your presence yeah. yep. whenever you yep. can. Yep. Take the center of the room. Take yep. the center floor, mm-hmm. center stage. You, you're there speaking for a reason. You're a, you have been given an entitlement here. You have their attention, but you have to value that. Mm. Same thing with the handshake. Mm. That handshake for a lot of people means a lot. Other people are kind of, mm. you know, I'm hesitant to put my hand out. Others are right there. Hi, how are you? I'm so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Again, nonverbal communication. I, ju- I, I think so that's I put overemphasis on the handshake. Yeah, you've, you've, you've broken my pinky a few times. I know. <laughs> well, there are those killer grips. We all know them. <laughs> I don't. Especially I, when you go in an interview, it's like, okay, you're trying to impress me or what's happening I'm here? Always, I'm always so frustrated when I go in for, for a handshake and they close on my fingers before I get – it's like, get to the yes. web, man. Get to the web. Yeah. <laughs> I can't – I can't – I'm not going to close – You know, oh, Those so are going to be your direct interviewers. They're going to be very direct with you in I answering just, the question. I, just, I, always stop, I always stop them regardless of how uncomfortable it There's is. There's a whole say. white paper on handshaking yeah. here. Yes. Yeah. Sounds like it. I read. Uh, I think there is, but yeah, that's I just did, a cultural thing. I just it wasn't a good handshake. Let's try again. I just yeah. want to take two. So I want to I want to book in this with. I, I love this. I'm going to go back to encore career. Oh, As yeah. we said earlier, you know, you're not retired. You spent Emeritus. Forty four years, but encore career still implies you did something that was so amazing. We want to have you back. That's the encore, yes. and it's a career you're still working. And I did. I just love that those two words together thank you for that or i'm not and i i can't take credit for the term but encore is really what are you doing after your first major career what happens next and my philosophy is i'm this vessel i have all this experience and knowledge i could retire and go live in the woods in montana and just keep this all here but that's not who i am Mm. and i just feel we all have a responsibility to advance careers, enhance careers, share knowledge, teach, and this is what I'm doing. And um, Gerhardt, they're the dean of the School of Management, you know, has given me this opportunity, executive in residence and adjunct professor, to really kind of self-actualize and live a dream that I've had, and that is to teach. So I was very excited to come here today, and thank you very much um, to be able to talk about the Encore career and what happens next. But you can Google Encore career. (laughs) And we will. And, you know, I think that's a lot of what drives this show as well is is that these are little, you know, 45, 50-minute lessons in the whole ecosystem of business uh, because we attack it from many different sides different lenses that we look at it through. So thank you for helping us understand the HR part, talent management personnel, all of that bit. Now at the end of the show, as our listener knows, uh, we have this part where I like to give you the opportunity to name this episode. Someone has come in through maybe another episode, now they're like, what do I want to listen to next? And they look through all these titles. Right, like I did. Because they don't, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I looked through all those yeah. titles. I was like, okay, what's this going to be? What's that going ex- to be? Ex- exactly. So what are we calling this show, Primo? Transitioning to your encore career. Ooh, that's pretty good. See? Yeah. See, you had that. Did you have that chambered up? Or did you just I didn't, but I was trying to summarize everything that you asked me. Good. And I'll do all the disclaimers that these are my opinions. <laughs> no, that the, these, you no. know, that the moment, the, you know, I, I read that a lot. I read a lot of people who say that in the top of their blog where it's like, this is my opinion. And I think, yeah, but I recorded this. So that's me 
you know, giving you a certain mm. amount of authority. You know what I mean? Like, like you, yeah. you, you don't have to back away from any of that. And yeah, I don't no. have to be here. That's the most yeah, important right. thing. Yeah, they you do want to be You opted in. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I elected in. Yeah. Thank I you so much. It was, really, it was great to meet you. Well, thank you both for the opportunity, yeah. Mark and Patrick. I really appreciate it. I also want to um, thank Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services and California Lutheran University School of Management. Gerhardt keeps sending us guests like this. We so appreciate it. And our podcasting partner, Pull String Press. If you're interested in partnering with our podcast, drop us a note to partner at 805connect.com or... And this is new. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in doing a podcast, mm-hmm. send us a note. We've been helping a lot of people. In fact, I taught a guy in um, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska two days ago. It took him through a one-hour, how do you get started, and you know, it seems all crazy. What do you do? We believe podcasts should be better. We believe every podcast should yes. be better. And so if we can help them, that's what we want to see. So how could someone help us? So how could our listener help us right now? Yeah, uh, rate, rate, review. Go on go on uh, whatever whatever podcast aggregator you are listening to this show through, uh, even if it's just iTunes. Uh, go in there and give us uh, some stars. As, as juvenile and insignificant as that might seem to you, uh, it allows other people to find us easier. Uh, and it, it allows us to uh, spread out our message. But, but perhaps secondary, uh, uh, you know, more importantly, uh, would be uh, go find a young person out there who hasn't yeah. had a good interview. Uh, let them listen to this show. Uh, hear the kind of tips that there might be uh, in just how to present yourself, or how to, or just how modern contemporary HR works, because it's it's a it's a confusing thing from the outside, and not everybody gets to go to CLU and and, and get an opportunity to uh, to take these classes. But um, give them an interview. There's going to be somebody out there in yep. your circle, yep. somebody's kid yep. who's 19 or 20, and she needs an interview, and 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 make her come in and interview in an office, uh, just the, to get the reps on the other side of the desk, just to get so that it's not the first time when it's the first time. I love that. I would love to hear from you if you've got a, a question for the show, or if you have the idea for a guest. We. Um, meet so many interesting people as a result of those introductions. Thank you so much. Just drop me a line at mark at 805connect.com. Thank you so much. And until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.